Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Modern Learners Podcast. If you're listening today, it's because you understand we have a real need for change in our schools and that we owe it to our learners to think differently about what school is and what it could be. If you're someone who is in a position of educational leadership where you aspire to be and you want to surround yourself with others doing the difficult but vital work of igniting school change, we invite you to join us in Modern Learners' newest community, Change Leaders. I'm Lynn Hilt, the Community Manager of CLC, and our space can help ensure you're using your professional learning time to the fullest. CLC offers carefully curated content to help you find signal among the noise, thought-provoking questions and discussions with inspiring community members who are serious about change, live events and access to the Modern Learners team, and a circle of critical friends who will help you kick off change efforts in your schools. Visit changeleaders.community and click subscribe to request your invitation to CLC. After doing so, we'll be in touch about how you can join in our movement, and we are so confident that you will find incredible value in making CLC your preferred learning destination that we offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. We look forward to continued learning with you. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Modern Learners Podcast, where a couple of weeks ago, someone told me that this is the place they go when they really want to make their brains hurt, which I guess is a good thing, right? I mean, a little brain stretching these days with education changing as quickly as it is um, can't be a bad thing. I'm Will Richardson, your host. And if this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome from all of us here at the Modern Learners team. And if you're a return listener, welcome back. We're really glad you're here. Um, If you're a school leader who's struggling to keep up with all the changes that are happening, you're in the right place because that's what we talk about here on a weekly basis, either with uh, me and my colleague and good friend Bruce Dixon or with other special guests. And today is one of those days when we're having a very special guest. In fact, we're talking to someone today who may have had the biggest impact on the change conversation education in the last few years. If, If you haven't seen or you haven't heard of the movie Most Likely to Succeed, then by this point, you're probably in the minority education-wise, as it's a documentary that has really swept the world in terms of trying to paint a different narrative as to what education can be. And it's a movie that was produced by today's guest, Ted Dintersmith, who um, has uh, really done a great job of getting that movie out into different audiences. It's been seen by millions of people around the world. And in fact, as you'll hear in our interview today, Ted tells us that in China, they're getting online screenings of about 25,000 people at a pop. So this is a movie that if you haven't seen it, you probably want to. And Ted is also out with a brand new book, which is called What Schools Could Be. And that's a collection of his reflections and his uh, observations of a road trip he took a couple years back to all 50 states trying to find new and innovative practice in classrooms and education. And he talks a lot about that in this episode as well. And so this one is going to be another one that makes your brain hurt. So if that's what you're here for, um, you'll you'll be satisfied. When you're done listening, if, uh, if you could do us a favor and go on over to iTunes and give us a rating, we would be most grateful for that. And don't forget to tell your friends and your colleagues and others to, to listen and subscribe. Uh, we're up to now 40 episodes, so there's a great backlog of episodes to listen to as well. And finally, don't forget to head on over to our new Change Leaders community. You can find us there at modernlearners.com slash changeleaders. And also check out Change School, where we are starting our fifth cohort in June. We have 250 people who have already been with us 
from around the world who are talking about sustainable, relevant, meaningful change in schools. We would love for you to join us in this summer. Um, we're looking for about 100 more people. Uh, if you want to get a sense of what Change School is about, probably the best place to go is change.school testimonials. You can see what some of our alumni are saying. It's been such great work. We would love for you to join us uh, in our next cohort. But for now, as always, just sit back and enjoy this 35-minute conversation with Ted Dintersmith. Uh, it will make your brain melt a little bit, and uh, hopefully that's a good thing. Thanks so much for listening. So, hey, everyone, and welcome to the latest Modern Learners podcast. As always, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Bruce Dixon, this time in Perth, Australia, where, what is it, Bruce? Bruce, it's five in the morning? Five, five in the morning. And you've been up most of the night, most of the night with your young grandchild anyway, right? That's so, right. Yes. really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to set the alarm clock. Yeah, that's usually <laughs> what happens when you have grandkids. So, uh, and the reason that Bruce is up at five in the morning is because we're joined today or this morning or this evening with by uh, Ted Dintersmith, who is in Hawaii. And this is how we make the time zones work, right? <laughs> that's where I am. That's right. What time is it for you, Ted? It's like 11 uh, or something? Yeah, or? it's 11. So 11 it's quite a reasonable so, time. It beats 5 a.m. There you go. Five in the morning, five in the night five in the afternoon and 11 a.m. in the morning. But anyway, regardless of the time zone, really great that you uh, have some time to join us, Ted. And we want to just spend a little bit of time talking about uh, certainly your new book, but also um, the, uh, the movie that has swept the education world, which is uh, most likely to succeed. And I think we'd love to start there, if you don't mind. Um, I know the movie's been out now for, I think, a couple of years, and um, I'm sure millions of people have seen it by this point. What's your sense in terms of the impact that it's had in, in, the, in terms of the larger conversation around education and change? I mean, um, I know that a lot of people are talking about it, but how much have you seen it turn into actual change in uh, classrooms and schools? Yeah, we've been excited by its breadth. I mean, it's been in 35 countries. It's, you know, we've done, I think, 5,000 official community screenings. I'm going to China in June because they're doing, th this is, both good news and also concerning news from my point of view, but they're regularly doing online events and getting 10 to 25,000 people yeah, to great. sign up and watch it, um, which, which, you know, it's like one of the things I do worry about is that, that the U.S. will look at things and say we should do this and someplace else will look at it and say we are going to do this. Yeah. You know, the film, it, we're seeing places, examples, certainly at the school level, the district level, where people are using it as a vehicle to help affect and accelerate change. Um, and so in May, I was at the superintendent of the year presentation in New Jersey, uh, a great superintendent there, Ross Kaysen. You know, he's seen the film 20 times. He had a school board watch it, all his faculty and principals. And in two and a half years, he changed 17 school district. And you go there, I went to five schools. I couldn't find a single board kid. I mean, they were doing the most amazing things. Um, we, we've certainly gotten feedback. A lot of people say, great, we're really fired up. What do we do next? And, it, and it's really led to what's on our site now. We call it an innovation playlist. And it's really small steps you can take that can lead to big change. And, and what I've observed is when schools decide that everything's going to look different in a month or next Monday or something, it's almost always a straight path to, to problems and disaster and setbacks. Right. And we really embrace, just try a little bit, get some confidence, get a feel for what it looks like to have a single Socratic seminar or 15 minutes of curiosity time for kids to generate questions or small projects kids can do in a few hours or a day 
Because if you do those and people say that's really interesting and we had a great experience with it, that will lead to more. And I think if you try to do too much, you can often set back the cause of, of rebalancing and shifting the learning experience more onto student-driven engagement. So I'm just, just, wondering, fast, just real fast and then I'll give it to you, Bruce, but um, I'm just wondering the extent to which you encourage schools to have kind of those meta conversations as well around those small steps. I mean, is it, is it a part of the way that you see change happening um, that they start asking those existential questions, like really what is school for and, and what is our role and value in the world today? Yeah, I mean, I, I made a decision, some people criticized me for it, but after the film premiered, I turned down the online guys who offered to buy the film. And to this day, we still use it to drive community engagement. So we offer either bring your whole school together and watch it and try to make that as you know close to free as we can. And then we have this committee of 10 offering where you can rent the film for a month and share it with nine colleagues for a grand total of 15 bucks for 10 people. You know, and so that helps. And then we're trying to, to get more traction with these, you know, just commit, just try to do things. I, I feel like I'm juggling a, a, a lot of balls, but we want to get that technology platform advanced so that we can start doing simple things like reminder functions and just, right. you know, our, our model is, you know, principal gets excited, invites teachers who would like to try something this month, not you have to, but who would like to share back your experience and I think a lot of teachers are itching to do it and others, if they see it can be done and they're not going to get their knuckles wrapped, will also join in. So the question then is where, where, do you, where have you heard or seen that it's probably had the most impact and why has it there in those particular places? Well, I'm here in Hawaii and it, if people think I'm just here on vacation, so <laughs> my seventh time in two years, we've got this incredible citizen volunteer here named Josh Rapoon. They've probably done 500 community screenings throughout the wow. islands and it's been on PBS three times. Um, it's, it's hard to find somebody plugged into education here who doesn't know of the film. And so it really is driving a lot of, you know, very active MLTS in Hawaii Facebook page. So it's really been driving change at the state level. And I, I just yesterday met with, you know, the governor and first lady, the superintendent of public instruction, several legislators involved in education. Um, you know, so it's sort of like, top support, but trusting teachers to lead the way. And I think that's really the, the most interesting thing, you know, that I've sort of reached a conclusion about is sort of more of what, what's an innovation change model. And, and as you know, we've used in the U.S. a lot of top-down central planning model that really looks more like Soviet Union economic planning than it does, you know, empowering the people who own the consequences to lead the way. And so in different ways, but in those two states I camp out in now, North Dakota and Hawaii, it's really trusting teachers to lead the way with support from the people in and around the education system, which is a very, I think, a stark but a healthy contrast to what we've tried to do nationally. Their policymakers, their political leadership, or is it a combination of all these things? A combination. In North Dakota, you know, a year ago, they passed Senate Bill 2186, the Innovation Education Act. Any school or district that wants a waiver, you know, justify it and they'll give it. Uh, we do, last year, the first, we're doing another one in June, the Innovation Education Summit. We formed an Innovation Education Task Force. You know, I work with North Dakota United there to do a weekly podcast series celebrating really great teaching practices. And, you know, and, and I think we need to, you know, we live in a world where everybody dwells on the negatives. And, and I think the way we're going to really 
affect change is by focusing on the positives, focusing on what's working and not saying to other people, copy it, but saying, look at what they did. Look at how that worked for their kids and their community. What are the things you're doing that maybe in a nascent way are also firing your kids up to learn and having the teacher feel really trusted to engage and inspire their students? So that was the, the, the question I was just going to follow on with because you mentioned Hawaii and obviously the film referenced uh, high tech and I'm sure you've heard many times people come to you and say, yeah, but you know, Larry and, and high tech is a charter school and Hawaii is just a you know, different nation as they do about Finland, as they do about New Zealand, as they do about Singapore. Um, how, do, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, in, in the film, and I give Greg Whiteley the credit, he was a brilliant filmmaker, but we went out of our way to say, don't copy high tech eye this is what they do and it works for them. You know, you know, you should do what works for you. And, and I really feel quite deeply that that's important. You know, so my role in life is not in any way, shape or form to tell any school or district or state what you have to do. I try to illuminate the urgency with the work I do in terms of changes in the economy and the fact that every routine job will be gone, but really just trying to understand what do you think could work and, you know, my, my guiding principles are small steps leading to big change, understanding what learning outcomes you want. You know, you know we, we need to think about what do we want our kids to get good at. And, and each school, maybe even each family might embrace that in a somewhat different way. But, but I love the phrase, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And so having some clarity of, and people generally conclude, you know, I want our kids to be creative problem solvers, or I want them to be collaborators but having some informed direction to the innovations you're taking. So it's not just carpet bombing a school with iPads and replacing paper flashcards with digital flashcards. Um, and then trying to celebrate the successes locally. And that's why I, I mentioned North Dakota. There's really remarkable teaching going on in that state. And, and so if we can highlight, these are, these are really profound and interesting things a lot of teachers say, well, I'm doing something in my own way that's really interesting. So we're getting a lot of the teachers kind of holding up their hands saying, this is what I'm doing that works. And as you start to get this pattern of a lot of very different things with a general acceptance that this classroom shouldn't be exactly like the next door class. You know, they should be different. They should take advantage of the passions and expertise of the teacher and the, and the interest and emerging skills of the students. And so it's really the antithesis of a standardized top-down model. So, you know, in the work that we do, uh, we kind of look at it from per two perspectives. One is, are you doing the right thing for kids? Meaning, you know, are you doing what you believe leads to really great learning? And are you, are you just um, being kind to kids and making sure that you have their best interests at heart? That's the first kind of lens. But then the second lens is, do you then understand how the world is changing and what the impacts of those changes are, not just on the current moment, but on obviously what's, what's coming down the pike. I'm wondering, you know, when, you, when we, you talk about what works, doing things that work, I mean, are there a couple things that you, that you think schools can hang their, kind of hang their hat on in terms of what works that isn't about tests, um, isn't so much about standardized assessments, you know what I mean? So that, yeah. so that they know that what they're doing is moving them in a particular direction that, that is, is best for kids and really prepares them for the, the modern world? Yeah, if I wanted to emphasize one, it's where I see things and just the kids can't wait to be in school and the teachers are highly motivated and you ask these kids questions and they've got great answers. There is a high degree of trust in those environments. 
the kids are trusted to direct a lot of their learning. They're, they're being coached and advised for how they can take on more and more agency, more responsibility instead of less, which often happens in schools. Yeah. And the teachers feel trusted. And, and over and over again, when I see something that I just say, wow, this is really great. I talk to that teacher and they, I'm blown away by what teachers are doing. But they also will, will tell me somebody had their back. You know, they didn't have to, you know, their principal trusted them. The school board gave support somewhere, somehow. And it's often that teacher-principal relationship. Because as you know, when you try something different, you know, people, there's a lot of grumpiness from all walks, you know, from parents, from the business community, from, you know, you know, any which way you can imagine. People get nervous and grumpy when something doesn't look the same as when they were in school. And we show that in the film. We, we do, I think, a great job of showing an honest look at parents' nervousness about something different. Right, right. And, and I mean, again, just reframing that in parents' minds too, right? What is working and, and maybe what isn't working. Um, yeah, I think we have was, a great, we just did a great three, it's a little less than three minute video on the future of work. And uh, you can see it on, the, on my new book's website, um, which is www.whatschoolcouldbe.org. But anyway, just in three minutes, it shows category after category after category of the emerging things that are going to just gut that job category of, of paid positions. You know, it's interesting. It's almost like a Rorschach test. You know, some people look at it and they're frightened, <laughs> including me, and other people look at it and they're incredibly excited about, you know, we don't have to do this anymore. And, and I'm also kind of in that camp. I'm a bit schizophrenic. But, but you know, when you realize if kids are freed of, of kind of drilling forever on the low-level mechanics of things and start learning to strive for big objectives and organize the resources around them and, and learn how to learn and stay at it till they accomplish something. If we can organize school around that process right. where kids over time build a body of work that they're really proud of that show increasing levels of accomplishment and developing competencies, I think these kids are going to be great. Um, but I think there's a lot on the line here, which is why I travel all the time and do what I do. I just feel like it's a fight for the future of our country, maybe of the world. So you mentioned the book and, and we'll get to it. Here it is. The, for those yeah, good. Looks good. Watch the recording. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks again for sending that. But before we do really fast, is there another movie down the road? Do you think, or do you need another? Well, movie? I'm, I'm one of the executive producers of a film on Sagata Mitra. That's, that's, uh, in a film festival this spring, that'll be out at some point called The School in the Cloud. Yep. And we've got a whole bunch of shorts we're doing around, um, you know, the work I'm doing. We've got three shorts on teachers inducted into the National Hall of Fame, Teachers Hall of Fame. We've got some shorts that are just interviewing people. We've got one coming on student loans. And at some point, I may do another feature length um, documentary. As you know, it's not you know, these aren't, if you want to do it well, it's, right. it's not a, a yeah. drop in the bucket. And, and if anybody it thinks I do this to make money, <laughs> I'm to open up the books and show you right. these are not money-making propositions. And so I did, I feel like I got really fortunate. I picked Greg Whiteley, who's great. And they stuck with it for two years and found a story with the two students that just really resonated with yeah. people. Um, and, and that's not easy. You see a lot of documentaries oh, on education. Yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to be you know, negative, but I think there are a lot of, it's easy to make a fairly boring documentary. And you see a lot that are just talking heads where there's no emotional buy-in over the course of the film. And I think that's the magic that Greg caught with that, that really is why 
a lot of people tell me it's, you know, it's far away the best film they've ever seen on school. Right. There's no question. And I think it is that emotional buy-in. I think Greg did an exceptional job and yourself and the way you put it together. Because as you said, look at, look at the number of people you've reached. If you're talking about 5,000 screenings, that's hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have actually seen it. So the message is certainly getting out there. So in the book, you talk, you talk about assessment and, and at Modern Learners in recent times, we've been talking a fair bit about assessment. We've just released a white paper, How to Win the War on Learning, um, which we'll share with you. And you write about new schools like entrepreneurial, entrepreneurialism and, and the risk of it being sort of bubble tested instead of exhibited. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how projects create the opportunity uh, for even better assessments and the work that you've seen in that space? Yeah, you know, you look at the difference between uh, kids that, that do things for the Intel Science Fair and kids that, you know, study like crazy for an AP exam and you know, largely you're memorizing formulas or, or yeah. formulate concepts and things like that. And, and you know, a, a video I show in my talks a lot, and your listeners can, uh, can just Google this. If you Google MIT graduation day light bulb wire battery, mm-hmm. and it's right. a three minute video and it shows all these kids in caps and gowns that had perfect scores on AP and SAT and, you know, 4.5, you know, honors or AP adjusted grade point average. And they're graduating from MIT and they can't light up a light bulb. And, you know, the, to me, it is anecdotal. I understand that. But it, it's, it points to a world where what we value is a kid that can memorize and, and shove the numbers around for Coulomb's Law and not make a units or a math error. And we look down at the skills that you have to have to be a master electrician. And to me, it's a very interesting debate about who's learning real science. You know, is the master electrician who can troubleshoot a house electrical system and wire it so it's not going to short out and really knows what loads mean? Is that arguably a better way to learn real science than memorizing Kirchhoff's Law or Coulomb's Law? It's not either or, but I feel we've gone whole hog in, in K through 12, maybe even K through 16 on the Coulomb's Law, Kirchhoff's Law, and shortchanged anything hands on. And I think that plays out in a lot of unfortunate ways. I mean, it plays out in kids that have really great proficiencies feeling like they're dumb because they're not fast in in parameter shuffling. It plays out in kids coming out of college and getting hired into the workplace and people saying, I don't get it. They don't don't seem to understand much of anything. And, And it really, I think, underscores the line I use is we have kids study what's easy to test, not what's important to learn. And so I think we need to rebalance between hands-on and applied and the academic. And I write about places that use the more engaged, more hands-on to then draw in the academic principles. And I think that's quite powerful. And you won't checkbox through the complete laundry list of curriculum, but what you do cover, you really understand. And I'd rather have a kid cover half of the physics principles and really understand them than a kid that can crank through all of them, memorize them, take an AP physics exam, get a five, and then four years after, you know, through MIT, they can't light up a light bulb. And so, you know, I think that's a really important thing. I mean, I'm support and I write about the Coalition for Access on the college level, the Mastery Transcript Consortium. So I think there's some great thought about how to demonstrate accomplishment in more authentic portfolios. But I, I use the example, I mean, I, I had a, you know, you could Google me, I, I did actually quite well in venture capital I never ask anybody whether it was to hire them or fund them what their SATs or grade point average was. Portfolios, by the way, are not STEM, and you know, exclusively. I ask right. for writing samples. Right. 
I, I was I loved it when somebody'd send me an essay on on having to do with a philosopher. But I could tell in a five-minute review of writing samples a lot about this person's ability to deal with complex issues and explain it to somebody. And then if I thought it was interesting, I'd call them and I'd ask them some questions about one of the essays I thought was interesting. And if they would say, oh, I don't really remember, that's a long time ago, that wasn't a particularly good leading indicator because they gave me the essay. But you know, you, you realize there's so much you can learn and it's not it's not something where suddenly to review those writing samples, I had to spend six hours. You know, I could look at three or four writing samples in five minutes. Right. I, I could get a sense of the person in, in four or five minutes. And, you know, I think my track record was, I think I backed 50 early stage, you know, three people in a garage type companies and 44 were successful. So I wasn't making that many mistakes. And this is coming from somebody who never once cared about SATs or grade point average. So you, you talk a lot about that in the book, obviously, and, and uh, the kind of uh, disconnect that we have in terms of the emphasis we put on those scores and what we think they mean when they really don't mean <laughs> hardly anything in terms of understanding what kids know or what they can do. Um, but you have a little bit of a framework that you talk about. You use PEAK, which is Purpose, Essentials, Agency, and Knowledge. And I was wondering if you could just talk through those fairly quickly and, and but spend a little bit of time on the knowledge piece because we actually had um, a couple questions come in before the session that asked, uh, and, and we get asked this question all the time, well, if we're gonna do all this other stuff, doesn't, isn't there some bucket of knowledge that all kids need to share? And if so, what is it, right? So yep. um, that's, that's the one that people get stuck on for some yep. reason. So talk a little bit about what those elements are and then let me hear yep. what Answer. Let me, I'll go in reverse order. So okay, knowledge, cool. I, think, I think we overestimate how much kids are really learning in school. And, you know, in the movie, in the book, we talk about the, I, I give them a lot of credit, but what Lawrenceville Academy did, you know, super exclusive yeah. school, high yeah. academic achievers, and three months later, retested kids on what they studied um, before, and the retention was essentially zero. And so have you really learned something if you get through an exam with cramming? do really well even. And then weeks or months later, you don't remember any of it. Uh, you know, I think we'd all agree you didn't learn it. And so in my talks, I'll ask audiences, you know, they think of things you really have learned and what would you look for as indications that somebody's really learned something? And the most interesting thing is that nobody says a recall-based exam. They say, can you teach somebody else the topic? Really great and authentic form of learning that could actually leverage instructional productivity in our schools. If, if, and I talk in North Dakota about this teacher that gives kids free time to explore, but learn whatever you want to, but you got to teach your classmates about it. Really powerful. Can you apply it? Um, you know, do you have some, can you debate on that basis? And so there are really great authentic forms of understanding whether somebody's learned something. They just don't lend themselves to rank ordering millions of kids one against each other. And I think that's where we've gone wrong is, you know, when you're looking at early grades and basic learning how to learn skills, those tests, I think, have value and they can be used, I would hope, more as thoughtful diagnostics instead of pounding on teachers and schools for not doing a good job when there's so many other circumstances that are enter in. But I think when you get to the more advanced levels, it's more nuanced. And the stuff that will matter to somebody as an adult is not something you can, can rank order measure with the standardized test. And so... So you look at these things, and as I say, I mean, the Mastery Transcript Consortium, show us that you're really good at communication. Kid has a creativity and latitude to offer 
critically analytic essays or creative writing or debate or a video of a talk, you know, and you can see, okay, their writing is pretty good, but their speaking is excellent. This is a kid that will communicate as an adult. And I think that is where, if, if we trust the one-to-one, -one, the more direct assessments based on evidence and don't feel so compelled to boil it down to a number, all sorts of opportunities open up for what our kids can do in school and what our teachers can do to help empower them. So that was, I'm sorry, that was, that was knowledge. And quickly, you know, the, the agency, I mean, you know, people tell me over and over, kindergarten kids have lots of discretion with their time. By the time they get to high school, they have very little. But I, I refer to the quote from senior person at Apple, you know, anybody who needs a manager is no longer employable. You know, we want people in the adult world who can manage their own efforts. We should align that with what's going on in school. I'm a big fan on the essentials of Ed Leader 21. You know, what are the skill sets and mindsets you want your kids to get good at through school and be clear about that. And then look at the learning experiences and, and be able to explain how it advances those you know, critical competencies. And then maybe most important is I just find way too many kids when you say, why are you doing it? The answer is I was assigned or it's going to look good on my college resume or some bullshit answer that really to me reflects a hollowing out of a sense of purpose. And the places that I describe in my book and that I think just have so many great things going on, if I ask kids, why are you doing this? The answer is I'm intellectually curious about this or I, I'm trying to build this and so I need to understand this or we're working to do this together and so my responsibility is to figure out how this works and they they just know their work is important and we just you know people that's just human nature if you think what you're doing is important you're going to do a way better job right yeah so it's been interesting hasn't it to see the response from um, the education sector the, the policy makers and particularly around curriculum and in many ways, I think you highlight when you talk about calculus and our response to the way that we continue to hang on to a lot of the traditions and legacy practices we've had. And you, you make mention of the, the phrase I think you use is from covered wagons to faster covered wagons. So how much of this curriculum today do you think is really about faster covered wagons? And what do we do about that? Well, it's a great question. And I, I, uh... I just, you know, I encourage people to look at what you studied, all the topics in grades seven through 12, and ask yourself, how many of those do you use in life today? And if you're lucky in a school in grades seven through 12, you did a fair amount of writing and got great feedback. But if you look at the studies of how much kids, the typical kid in America is writing during those years, it's actually shockingly little. Um, and then I look at a whole laundry list of things. And so in my ideal world, I'd say, why don't we reimagine curriculum? That's a very hard, I always say curriculum is a boulder and pedagogy is a pebble. And so I feel like no matter what the curriculum is, even you know, one of my whipping boys is calculus. You know, like I think you can use things there and approach them differently um, in a way that gets, you know, draw students in and gets them more engaged. And so if the kids are debating each other, if they are asked to take multiple paths to solve a problem, if they're given space and time, which is hard with something like calculus, for how could you actually apply this to your world and, and, and be more productive or effective in making the world better. But I think we can do a lot with the pedagogy, which is the innovation playlist is all around lighter steps that don't mean you're going headlong into something that's fairly entrenched. Um, but these are life outcomes. I mean, and one of the, the points I make is that when you have kids take, you know, pick math and, and people could Google me. I've got, 
you know, I'm not a rookie when it comes to math background. So, I have a, you know, I've got a PhD in math modeling from Stanford and published paper, lead author published papers. And so I know a little bit about it. But honestly, you know, most of these things, people will say they're fundamentals and they're not, that they're teaching you how to think and that they're really low level pattern recognition. And, and you look at this and you say, you know, I, I describe these kids in Albuquerque who are learning social media optimization, which isn't in any curriculum anywhere, right? I mean, I, my phrase about curriculum is it's always a decade late and a trillion dollars short. Um, and so by the time we got going on that, we'd be doing something on how you use MySpace to, you know, and the, and the applied math binder, which is actually very interesting. But the difference for a kid trying to claw their way out of poverty between getting to calculus as a senior and then knocking on doors and saying, I can do a closed form integral, will you hire me? The answer is no versus a kid that has a chance to construct and implement a social media campaign and really understand the applied math behind it, which is actually quite interesting. As a kid that, if they've got a reference account, they are out of poverty. They are often running it like, no matter what they do, go to college or not, they have this safety net they can always make a fair amount of money online to customers all around the world as social media consultants. And so, so that's not a slight difference in life trajectory, right? And so I just look at this and I say, look at the number of kids who don't get a high school diploma because they can't pass algebra. And when I ask audiences, you know, anybody done solve simultaneous equations in the last year? <laughs> and they just have it, right? <laughs> they just have it. And, and it's, not to say it's, bad stuff. <laughs> you know, it's not to say it's bad stuff. And, and, you know, there is a beauty to math that I, trust me, I, I appreciate. But I think we owe our kids more. You know, like, I don't think it's okay for a bunch of academic mathematicians to say glory, you know, take glory and, and joy in the beauty of math, if in fact most kids are finding that to be an impediment in life instead of an accelerant. Right. And if we could have them do something else that could let them escape poverty. And so I, I sort of feel like, man, when we tell kids you should be good at something, we should have really good answers. And so I'd love to see that change, but, but in the Today's real world, I feel like the bigger opportunities are smaller changes around pedagogy and hope at some point we start to really rethink curriculum and make sure it's, it's more aligned with what's important in life. So in the few minutes that we have left, I'd love you to talk a little bit about higher ed. You have a quote in the, uh, in the book that says, we prepare kids for the college application, not for college. <laughs> and I think yeah. when I read that, I was like, yeah, that's absolutely true. So, I mean, what's your sense of what's happening in higher ed? Because uh, some of the things I read suggest that there are, are a lot of people now who are kind of looking at the diploma and going, yeah, that's not really that, as much of a requirement. It's not something that's as valuable as it used to be. Um, and that there are other obvious kind of financial and demographic pressures coming down on, on higher ed right now. So, I mean, what's your sense of what their role is in this change that has to take place? Because it really is a of, you know, birth through 16, if not longer than that um, kind of change that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, there's, there's really two economies, right? There's a creative economy and then the legacy economy. So the legacy economy cares a lot about credentials. And as long as they're out there, you know, a, a Goldman Sachs is probably not going to be hiring a high school dropout. And, you know, legacy companies like Enterprise or Sherwin-Williams, which we write about, you know, will insist on college degrees for if not entry level for promotions, you know, but those jobs are going down. They are less and less of the economy. The creative economy cares about tangible examples of what you can do. And, you know, you see it in journalism, you see it in coding, you see it in 
design, you see it in, you know, go to Upwork. I mean, you know, right. you don't look for their college degree. You look for portfolios of work. And I think that's really healthy and great. Um, and so I think that's changing. Will colleges change fast enough? I, you know, I write about some colleges that I really admire that are, that are rethinking a lot of things about what they're doing. You know, I, I was inspired by the Naval Academy, by University of Maryland, Baltimore County, by um, Arizona State, um, others. But, but that's not many. And, you know, you look at, you know, I just say, before you offer an opinion on college, read Academically Adrift by Richard Aram and Josepha Roxa. I, I don't want to talk to you about your views on college until you've read that book, because I haven't found anybody else do longitudinal studies of how much real learning is going on in college. And, and it's not to say that it's not a great thing for some kids. It is. But too many kids are heading down that path and either dropping out often with some student loan debt or winding their way to the finish line in not four years, but five, six years with a fair amount of student loan debt and then are just left kind of like, I don't know what to do. And, right. you know, when that happens, right, we kind of own the responsibility. And, and one of the most important points I make is when you – because one of the bullshit things that I really take issue with, and you'll read it all the time, a statistician says a college degree is still the best investment somebody can make. We, you know, it's worth $175,000 more of earning power. It's worth whatever, you know, blah, 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 blah. They, they never take into account. I always say it's comparing apples to rotten oranges. <laughs> you know, you know if, in fact, if in fact you go down the path before your college and make it through and graduate, and get a good job or not, you know, that, that database probably includes all the graduates irrespective of their job. You're comparing it to kids who put the entirety of K through 12 on college ready and didn't make it to the finish line. If we, if we started to redirect some of the time, particularly middle and high school, toward letting kids develop really great hireable proficiencies. And this is, I respect all these jobs. I respect somebody who's a master electrician. I talked about how I think they actually understand more science the most PhDs in double E. But I also think there's a whole set of creative careers that kids could absolutely jump on coming out of high school. And down the road, if they go to college, great, you know, or not, just don't break the bank to go through a bunch of distribution requirements and come out and end up working 31 hours a week at Starbucks. I mean, that, you know, too many kids are getting really pummeled in a process where we tell them it's college or bust. We organize K through 12 around college or bust. Right. And we, they don't come out of K through 12 with multiple options. They're sort of, it's sort of college or Chipotle. And, and that's really a bad trade-off for kids. Right. And, and so colleges may change. You know, the, the, I think that some of the proposals to make college free just are, you know, like make no sense to me. But they need to be better and more affordable. And they need to start respecting time in the workplace whether it's as a journalist, you know, interning with a, a newspaper, you know, any of these things, you know, like carve out time from the college experience to let kids get real world experience, be more like a Northeastern model instead of a four, four years and then just chuck yourself down to the career placement office and sign up for some interviews and hope. So, uh, Ted, you've been very generous with your time. We've really appreciated it. And you've certainly touched on a lot of topics that are right at the heart of the work that we've been doing also. And, uh, just my final question is, is, is again, uh, your book mentions, talks a lot about what's happening in US schools, and obviously that's where a lot of your experience has been. But I know you also said to us that um, you, the, the movie's been seen in 35 countries. And I know you have had a lot of con contact and communication with people in other places. Just interested if you've got a sense about 
where you think some of the work that you're you're supporting is being done uh, well, or there are there are good samples of initiatives in countries that uh, you could make mention of. Yeah, you know, and I, I, so I'll give you one very specific anecdote. Is that you know I, I went to China ten years ago, and I hope you don't have a lot of visit, listeners from China, but I. I I think I they block us there. They didn't, you know, yeah. we're oh, good. Okay, good. I'm, I'm okay. I, I didn't, I did, after being there, I didn't leave and say, boy, I can't wait to get back. And so, so I've got this contact here in Honolulu, a great guy named Phil Bossert. And he goes to Beijing once a, once a month. And he's been like, you got to come to China. You got to come to China. And I've been to Phil. I just, I'm, you know, I, it's hard enough to work, you know, in one country, let alone multiple countries. But two months ago, he had me come to a dinner with three people who flew here from Beijing. And they told me that in the last four months, this was in January, over a million people had watched the film in China. Wow. It's been pirated, of course. And they're regularly doing, they're regularly doing online events with 10 to 25,000 people signing up to watch the film. And so I'm going in June. I want to see what's going on. And, and I think that, you know, and I hear the same thing from Pasi Salberg in Finland, or when I talk to Andreas Schleicher is, you know, other countries say we get a lot of our best ideas from the United States. You know, the difference is we actually do something with them and you often don't. And, you know, one of my goals with the book is to celebrate really great things that are going on in the U.S. But I will note the book has already been translated into Mandarin. You know, like it, it's in Mandarin as quickly as it's in English and they are all over this. And initially, the pub, my publisher, who's great, Princeton University Press, said, well, it's all about U.S. examples. I'm not sure what the size of the international demand will be. Well, we're finding out, right? I mean, there is really a keen interest in knowing what's working in the U.S. And I feel like if, if we in the U.S. are complacent and just say, we'll get there, or, you know, I say machine intelligence isn't slowing down. Other countries aren't slowing down. You know, the U.S. needs to take this very seriously. And, and I think understand right the the vital role that the teachers play in making that happen because as i travel i just find a lot of really great teaching going on teachers that would love to do things differently that feel constrained by an environment that really is it's not the teachers that are obsolete but it's the metrics and the the construct around what's going on in school that really needs to be rethought well, Ted, listen, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, your book was a great read. Some, some brilliant passages in there that I've underlined and starred and everything else. And uh, uh, what I like, really liked about it is that it's, it's very challenging on one level. I mean, you don't pull any punches when you talk about some of the, some of the issues that we have, you know, especially here in the States. But I do think you're, uh, it is it's inspirational as well in that there are lots of people who are doing lots of interesting things. And it's it's good that they're collected in one place. So congratulations on the book and uh, sincere best wishes on your continued work to make that change awesome. happen. No, no, I really appreciate it. And thanks to you guys for the great work you're doing. It's, it's uh, you know, I've admired it um, considerably. And so I really am grateful you're, you've been taking this on and doing such great work over many years. Well, it's uh, hopefully, much. yep, we're, we're comrades in arms, <laughs> at least on that, on that point. So anyway, thanks so much, Ted. Really appreciate it. And uh, we hope to be in touch down the road. Great. Thank you. All the best. Cheers. Thanks again, Ted. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.